This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Carol Queen has been on the front lines of the sex positivity movement since the 1970s. A cultural sexologist, author, and co-founder of San Francisco's Center for Sex and Culture, Carol is a longtime advocate for sexual health and pleasure. In this episode, sex therapist and CIIS Sex Therapy Certificate Program lead, Zoe Seip, joins Carol for a lively conversation exploring the state of sex in 2021. This episode contains explicit language and, as the title suggests, discussions of sex. It was recorded during a live online event on June 9th, 2021. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hi, Carol. Hi, Zoe. It's so nice to be with you. So good to be with you. In fact, I want to just do a little bit more Carol bragging. Is that okay? Yes. I just want to bring a little bit of the humanness that I was looking up when I was um, thinking about introducing you. And this is from a Good Vibes article celebrating 28 years of your service there as the staff sexologist. And here's what they had to say. Carol Queen has made it her life's work to help all of us have better sex and feel comfortable in our bodies. To say that she has helped shape the world for the better would be an incredible understatement. Yeah, so I just wanted to presence that. And um, let's begin by saying happy National Sex Day. Yes. <laughs> six, National sex nine is six nine is National Sex Day. And I don't even think we knew that when we scheduled this event. It, I don't think we did. It's kismet. It's a beautiful miracle. And what what is what's the history of National Sex Day? Do you know? I honestly don't know. It's like like so many other holidays that yes. someone thought needed to happen on a particular date. It yeah. appeared on the internet and is taking off like wildfire, I assume. I am, I am encouraging people um, to celebrate National Sex Day according to their own traditions. I'm going to celebrate it right here today with you. <laughs> this is my way. That's, that's right. So I thought we could begin, Carol, by you sharing with the audience members about what does it mean to be a cultural sexologist? How do you think about that? Well, a sexologist is someone who has professionally studied or dived deep academically into sexuality uh, at the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, where I got my degree. Ted McElvena, the person who was the the co-founder and the president of the place, used to just describe it as what people do and how they feel about it, which is a a nice and simple elevator speech for sexology. But I also 
let people know that any professional focus on sex that's a higher level focus than another professional of that type would have, they those people veer into sexology very frequently, I think. I have a degree in sociology, too, and I'm really interested in social movements, identities, uh, the politics of sex, the cultural change around sex. And so I coined the term cultural sexologist to, to differentiate myself from the, the white coat clinician types uh, that I was meeting more of when I first got into sexology studies. So I that's... That's a nice lead-in, I think, for our conversation, the cultural lens. And what what my intention for tonight is, is we're exploring the, like you said, the ways we think about sex, how cultural movements, how political movements, how they shape ourselves sexually. And that means, I imagine, and this is what I'm interested for you to comment on, is the ways not only that we feel about sex, how we think about sex, and how we actually act and behave sexually inside of a cultural milieu that we may not even be aware of uh, inside of socialization processes. So my, my thought is we will take a little bit of a cultural history tour together, beginning at around the 1950s, centered mostly in, in this country, and then we'll spend some time in the last 20 or 30 years since the topic of our conversation here is the state of sex in 2021, which is no small feat for 60 minutes. We'll do our best. <laughs> We're going to do our best. <laughs> so how does that sound to you? Does that that sounds sound? wonderful. Okay. Yeah, I, I yeah. just want to remind people that the last century of our history has has given us a lot of options and a lot of a lot of fraught options in some cases about sexuality. It's changed a lot of things that my grandmother, when she was of the age, uh, having my mother in 1920, probably wouldn't recognize now. So I just want I just want to set the stage with that. We're going to talk about maybe half of that time, but this has been one wild ride of a century. Yeah. So let's let's start there. Why don't we? Um, and again, this is not going to be an exhaustive list by any means, as we both know. But let's start sketching out maybe some of the the big moments in sexual history, uh, beginning in the 1950s, and then we'll kind of flesh out some of the ones in, in more recent times. Well, the 1950s we had all the work that was leading up to the pill. Uh, quite a quite a few people devoted time and uh, money and energy and political focus to that. Uh, I also want to say we had the most to date high profile transsexual person, Christine Jorgensen. That was in the 1950s. We had Allen Ginsberg reading Howl at the Sixth Gallery in San Francisco, talking about homosexuality in a really open way. And we had people who were doing the work that, that is often not acknowledged today when we talk about the gay and lesbian movement, um, bringing the, the, the homophile movement together, the, the organizations and the groups and the support systems and publications that were 
going to transform into the gay and lesbian and gay GBLT movements soon enough. And and I that makes me think of also Kinsey in the in the fifties. That makes me think of Masters and Johnson as a sex therapist and the impact that had. Absolutely, and Kinsey, of course, Kinsey. Kinsey began to change our world in the 1940s. Actually, his research started before that time, but Sexual Behavior in the Human Male was published in the late 1940s, and he was on the cover of Life magazine, a beautiful portrait of him pictured with a bird and a bee. In my um, in my bottomless collection of cool sex stuff from the last many great. decades, I've got a copy of that somewhere. And uh, he died at the end of the 1950s, partly because he was hounded when he released his volume about women's sexuality. It was one thing to think about men and and their sexuality, their the several ways they achieved orgasm and all the different things. It was another thing to talk about our wives, daughters, mothers, sisters like that. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> he had quite a, a lionized first part of his career and then a lot of pressure at the end. What do you think the impact of his work was it, it, from a personal perspective? Like how did that land for people individually, do you think? I, when it took a little tour of the Kinsey Institute 20 or so years ago. And one of the things I saw there that made a really big impression on me was a black and white photo. I think it was hung in the office. We passed through the like the, the secretarial pool on the way to see the, the cool secret room of uh, fine art that Kinsey had collected and had been donated. And this photo showed Kinsey on stage in his bow tie and his brushy crew cut, looked a little like my dad, uh, in the 50s sometime on stage at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. And you could see the audience beyond him. And the Greek Theater was packed with people. We only see that during rock shows now, but they came out for Kinsey as though he was a rock star. And... uh, People finally could read a book all about sex. It might be a little dry. There were a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of like sociological charts and stuff like that to go through. But it told gay men that there were a lot more men who had had sex with other men than generally was talked about. That I think the the percentage of men who'd had sex with men and women was all they counted in those days, was close to 35%. And the idea that there was one normal way to be a sexual person was blown up forever by the Kinsey reports. He wasn't the first person to do, to, to send that message. That message had been growing in the world of sexology and psychology for decades already. But he was the bestseller and he changed the discourse. And that, that's such a profound shift in the discourse. I mean, that to me, from your perspective, does that bring us up to the sexual revolution where the discourse then changes again at a, a wide level? Like, how would, you, how would you think about that piece? Well, I sort of think about, about the, the counterculture, the, the sort of modernist post-World War II 
wait a minute, what's the world? What does it have waiting for us? The the man in the gray flannel suit. Bob Dylan name checked him. It was a it was a book in the fifties, but mm-hmm. but the the Betty Friedan's problem that has no name. There was a there was a counterculture before what we think of as the sexual revolution and the the summer of love and the sixties counterculture. It was related. It was the 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 on ramp to that for sure. But it was the it was the beats. It was people looking to live more authentically and to and to galvanize a criticism of U.S. culture as they saw it, U.S. role in the world, the kind of things that people talk about today, right? That was going on 60, 60 plus years ago. And floating on top of that was this new knowledge about sexuality. And I don't know if anybody has done any deep dive studies into how that sexology touched the counterculture, but we know that from the 1950s through the end of the 1960s, things shifted profoundly. It was it was LGBT um, visibility and access, you know, coming to a, a head at the Stonewall riots in 1969. But as I said, there were things going on for a couple of decades at least before that that also played into that. So I don't think you can I don't think you can take one specific thing off our list and say it's not it's not in a string of pop beads with at least two other things. There it's, it's all it's all mashed up. This this cultural change one thing inspires or puts a new lens on another thing and and so culture rolls on. So sex in culture rolls on. And that when did you move to the Bay Area? Because that that whole generation that you're talking over, that movement, really, it was located in this area. And that was one of the things that I, I was inspired to have this conversation with you because you you are a living, breathing embodiment of somebody who walked that through much of the city and the evolution of San Francisco and the Bay Area Am and I right on that? You are, but I'm also, I, I feel like I'm really the second generation. I'm in my 60s, yeah. but I feel yeah. like I'm in the second generation, at least, yeah. of the people who changed San Francisco culture and and the its home as a place of sexuality communities to become the San Francisco that you're talking about when you ask me that question. Right. So the, I mentioned Ted McElvenna and the, the Sex Institute at the very top. And Ted McElvenna was hired by Cecil Williams at Glide Church to be the night minister in the 1960s before the Summer of Love, where he ministered to druggies and streetwalkers and the trans women who hung out in the Tenderloin and who were later the ones who started throwing coffee cups at the Compton Cafeteria riots, which preceded. We had two queer riots in San Francisco that preceded Stonewall. Not that anyone's counting, but we did. And and the summer of love, of course, it's pretty well known. And it wasn't just sex that brought people to San Francisco for that, but early early on before the 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 pride that we think of is associated with the 70s and the 80s 90s and on till till now it's pride month now of course 
the big march down Market Street or whatever Zoom variant we're going to be doing this year, there was a sexual diversity march of sorts that went through the parts of San Francisco that are most associated with sexuality, the polk, the tenderloin. And there are still people living in those communities now who can remember when that was going down then. I was a kid, and I was reading everything I could already about what was going on in California and San Francisco and dreaming of coming here. So obviously my on-ramp took the entirety of the 1970s. I started to visit San Francisco in the 70s. I did go to one of those prides. I went to the pride before Harvey Milk and George Moscone were shot. So if you want to start my first step of trajectory there, that's a a fair place to put it. I saw fabulous drag queens with glitter in their beards, the hippie drag queens, not the the well-shaven drag queens, with a protest sign that said, U.S. out of San Francisco. And that about summed it up in that in that decade, San Francisco was transmogrifying into a place that was safer than any other place in the United States and most places in the world. For queer people, for, for sexually and gender diverse people, there were all kinds of communities, movements, little start up entities that later blossomed into all the things that have all the different pride flags now. And I didn't show up to live in the Bay Area until the mid-80s. And what brought me here then was the AIDS epidemic. I thought I would get my sexology degree and devote myself to that work. And I did devote myself to that work, but it turns out a lot of other kinds of work, too, because, of course, once I started at the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, diving into sexuality as a a big picture topic, anything I did and explored became relevant. I must say that if you want to get extra credit for doing all the sexual exploration, sexology is a great place to do that. (laughs) So I did... My dissertation, uh, of a variant of my book, Exhibitionism for the Shy, that was born in a peep show booth at the Lusty Lady Theater, thinking about exhibitionism and voyeurism, not as problematic uh, perversions, not as... Um, not as codes in the DSM, but as erotic preferences as enhancing activities. And of course, if there's one thing that this foment of sexuality and diversity and community has brought us by this time in the 21st century, it's that there are all kinds of ways to add enhancement and to find your own sexual space, not everybody is the same and not everybody needs to be the same. I mean, that's sort of the essence of sex positivity, really. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm imagining you as a little girl. Where were you? Were you in Oregon at that time? I was in Oregon. I was in the sticks when I was a little girl. I lived outside of Cheshire. 
You don't know where that is, do you? Everybody out there, hardly anyone does. And then later it was Glide. Glide was a little more famous because Glide Mm. had a wildflower show that showed up in Western Highways magazine or something. But neither one was very large. Both of them didn't feel really like the late 20th century had quite arrived, except that boys kept going to Vietnam. And so when I went to Eugene for college, it was a that was a great cultural leap. And that's as as your life is a kind of microcosm, you know, if we're looking at how large cultural sweeping trends can inform an individual's personal sex life. And this is the, you know, because I'm a psychotherapist, I work so deeply in that realm and the family systems and intrapsychic and the relationship and how it shows up. If we're talking about the the awakening, the sexual revolution movement, and all that came after that with sexual diversity and what San Francisco is, here we have you, a little girl, dreaming, knowing there's some place she can go to find a home and to find a kind of expression. And so it's that's one of the ways I hear as we're reflecting on these larger cultural trends. How does it impact us personally? And your your story is so interesting in that way to me because you, your book, especially Real, Real Life Nude Girl, is an erotic exploration into the realms that many people would not might not have felt so free to go. I knew from the very jump that sexuality was interesting to me. One of I didn't know why. I, that was the case, actually. Uh, it was pretty obvious that I was more interested or at least more willing to talk openly about it than other people around me. But it wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I found out that my mother had um, dealt with sexual abuse in her girlhood around the same time in her lifespan that I started to perk up and go, What is this? And of course, that happened to her in the 1930s. And my uptick of interest happened in the 1960s and very early 70s. And those two decades were worlds apart as far as sexuality and discourse was concerned. Thank you, Dr. Kinsey. So the the things that were options for me good old learning about sex in the gutter, going to the library, trying to figure out what all this was all about. What are the definitions of these words that I'm reading in my mother's magazines? What can I read that's beyond that? Where can I explore? How can I talk about this? What's safe? Wait, bisexuality is a thing? What I found is that no matter what kind of sexual experience or attempt toward sexual experience I had, because not everybody took my hints or said yes to whatever whatever I was offering, but I always learned something from any of the experiences that I had, whether I would think back on them as good sex or not. They were always informative, informational, open new questions for me. And so when I learned that there was a thing called sexology, 
where do I sign up? Clearly, I've been working towards this notion for this whole time. I came out as bi in the 70s. I heard a lot of, well, you're just a fence sitter. Well, you don't, you just have to choose one or the other. Why? Why do I have to choose one or the other? Who made that rule? That's ridiculous. And, you know, like you could, you could get the homophobia in that, but it's also, it would be better to be gay than bi. Where is the logic? I do not understand the logic. And and every time one of these kinds of opportunities or great curiosities came into my life, it gave me more space to be who I was, gave me more information about who I was, allowed me to think more broadly about sexual diversity in general, and ultimately helped me think about what wasn't there to have the kind of sexual comfort and and community that I missed in those years when people were saying, you got to pick just one. I did actually pick one after a little while. I was lesbian identified for a decade. How are you going to get a girlfriend otherwise? People hear you're bisexual and they're like, oh, I, no, I've heard about you people. It's like, well, you haven't heard about me. And well, all right, all right, I'm a lesbian. Let's, let's find out what this is going to teach me what I can give, what I can get. I mean, you know, why do why do we why do we reach for sexuality and and relationships in the first place, right? We're we're connecting, we're learning, we're giving, we're getting, we're building identity. There's we're building we're building support in a life, we're building community sometimes. All of that's been true for me. And how much do you think that was about that was linked to what was happening culturally? I mean, you're in a very unique place. You're in the Bay Area. You're obviously a very unique, unusual human with an interest in sex, an interest in your own personal self-expression and freedom. How much do you think your your particular story was influenced by what was happening at the time? enormously totally if if i hadn't had access to these streams of thought even the ones that i could just get wisps of as a little kid as a as a teenager you know by the time i went to college i had a pretty good read on feminism on homosexuality and bisexuality i mean there there were i was I was figuring it out as best I could, given the constraints of what I had access to. But in the 1970s, I had access to so much more discourse than my mother had had, than many people in other places now maybe even have, if their internet connection is really bad, or if they don't have internet at all. Because now, of course, you have access to everything on the internet. The challenge now is to winnow the information and put it into some kind of context. It's not always contextualized. But I was building my context in retrospect, partly by affiliating with queer community and, and becoming one of, the, one of the people in, at my school who 
you know, I was the director of the Gay Alliance for a while. Before there were lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender people, much less all the rest of the people in our alphabet now. Uh, thank goodness we have more and more and more people being added to this acronym. And I'm glad there are vowels because someday it will spell a word. More vowels, please. But I had access to... I. I co-founded a gay youth group. I had access to other gay kids and learned about their their paths and journeys and, you know, mourned when they didn't make it to 21. And would I have founded a gay youth group pre-Stonewall? No, I don't think I would. You know, would I have, would I have explored bisexuality pre-Kinsey? Yeah, but I might not have known the word for it. You know, there there was, which is why I say I'm at least second generation. You know, any of us who have done any work in this space stand on the shoulders of giants. You can go back and back to find people who were restive in their norm. They couldn't stay in their norm. They had to step outside of it. And when you do that, you make more space for other people and you find the people who already did it and you find more space for yourself. That's how I think of it. But without these ideas, without these ideas to, to get hold of and to interrogate and ask, how do I relate to that idea or that sexuality or would I want to try that thing? I'll try anything once <laughs> because I'm learning from all of it. I'm learning what I don't want as well as what I want. So yes, enormous enormously important. And the things that I didn't know then, once I delved deeply enough, I started to learn about and, and, and realize in retrospect, there was even more going on that was shaping the culture that I was fortunate enough, privileged enough to, to come into. And, I, and when I use privilege in this particular way, I'm saying an access to information even though there was a lot that I didn't have access to, I still had access to a lot. And the accident of history that brought me into this world when I came here, because it would have been different at a different time. And that's such a huge part of any cultural force is access to information. So if we fast forward, so this is a, and again, I get it. It's like we're, we're just doing a very brief sketch of some of the main events, the pill, Kinsey, Masters and Johnson, the HIV epidemic. We're going to fast forward now up to the last 20 or 30 years. So what are some of the movements that have impacted us recently? There's just been a fabulous new history of ACT UP, sort of mm -hmm. the, the activism that came out of the AIDS epidemic and the and the fight to get AIDS acknowledged to find treatment, find a cure, all of that, you know. Fauci was just talking about that this week. Sarah Schulman was just uh, on a on a webinar that I I heard her talk about the book which she co-wrote and and did all the help did all the oral histories. So actually she wrote the book and co-did the oral histories that the book comes from. And so there was that going on. There so what that means is that there was a um a, an uptick of politicization associated with 
the AIDS epidemic and that carried all the way through the 90s, mostly. The Speaking of politicization of sexuality, the mid-80s also gave us uh, the feminist sex wars. And I think I have... Uh, I have learned a lot and reacted a lot and and had a lot to say about the feminist sex wars, this notion that there are kinds of sexuality that really women are not interested in and shouldn't be exploring. And so I went out and explored all of them just to check. <laughs> Thank you. BSM check, porn check, sex work check. And so all that stuff happened. And of course, while we're talking about cultural changes, the the development of of discourses and and support networks and systems around the sex industry around the sex industry in all ways, but certainly about prostitution. And Margot St. James, who founded Coyote in 1973, just died a few months ago. And so we're still in that stream. There's there are young ones leading a new uh, part of the movement now. There was the um, there was the introduction of the term polyamory to those of us who uh, hadn't heard it before. Polyamory came from a a pagan circle, actually, a, a Northern California pagan circle. Uh, Morning Glory Zell, I believe, is the name that we should link up to the popularization of that word, but but soon stepped out of that space and went into other alternative spaces. The Bay Area is not the only place by any means where polyamory is a, a real thing, but it certainly got a boost in the sexually open and and now we can say relationally open world because polyamory isn't a form of sexuality. It's a form of relationship structure and choice. So there are lots of different ways to shape our relationships too. And going all the way back to the 60s, we know that because of Carista and the other communes that were Bay Area staples in the run-up to the Summer of Love that had sexual freedom or specific kinds of sexual relational rules and regs as part of what these various communes did. So I'm sure there are places very much like that even now. And many, many people have realized that if you learn how to communicate about sex adequately, you can shape open relationships that don't have to involve sneakiness and mm -hmm. subterfuge and lack of consent or, well, if nobody ever even knows about it, it's not a lack of consent, is it? Yeah, probably. It <laughs> probably is, actually. I'll just be judgmental for a second. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so the politics of sex and, and the changing institution of marriage that's one of the ways i hear it the expansiveness of relationship forms i'm thinking of in 2016 when ok cupid added its non-monogamy click box at least in the bay area i don't know if that hits all states um i so, expect that it does yeah, actually yeah yeah and uh, part uh, i mean connected to that but not the same thing you know, this is the pop bead theory that I just invented a few minutes ago, uh, is, of course, marriage equality, which we have, you know, in the early 2010s, we get the, the, legal, um, the legal cases that, that added up to marriage equality. But 
uh, you know, I think from this vantage, people think, oh, they, they, the, the gay rights movement really had to work hard for a few years to get marriage equality. We were talking about marriage equality the year I came out in 1973. The, the, a long time, this is, anybody who signs up for these kinds of cultural change projects, please be aware that you're going to do culture change projects for decades and decades, because even if you get your cultural change project accomplished relatively soon, somebody will pop up and push back. And we're seeing that now. So those things are those things are part of the mix. Mentioning politics and the pushback around politics. There was a certain uh, intern who is now the star of Twitter, who had something going on with a certain president who said, I did not have sex with that woman under oath, dude. And one, I just want to say, I bet she thought she was having sex with him, which like asks us, what is sex anyway? We don't even have enough time to get into that. We don't even have enough time. But I will say that that was another one of those moments where, just like a decade before, when the Surgeon General finally put out a pamphlet that talked about safer sex, it was mailed to all the households in the United States, just like that, and just like Kinsey, when something that high profile and political and normative and all the way up at the top of the food chain, I suppose we need to include the Kardashians now and all of that, I guess, probably, uh, because that's how people in a culture without good sex education, I truly believe that we bounce off cultural reference, including rom-coms and porn, including sex in the news, all the kinds of cultural reference that that stand in for, let's tell everyone all about sexual diversity and help everyone understand all of this, because that isn't a thing, not a state-sponsored or sanctioned thing. So we get to talk about oral sex and... Um, possibly inappropriate relationship growth with our kids. And now those kids are deciding that they need to go to CIIS and get a degree <laughs> in sex and public policies because, because this stuff changes us and the pushback changes us too. So marriage equality and its backlash, gender equality and its backlash – we haven't well you're, and what you're mentioning really is the internet the rise of the internet and the public nature of sex particularly that makes me think of the me too movement and how that as a cultural reference is impacting how we think about sex what we're willing to do with sex behavior about sex and i'll say one last thing just before it loses goes out of my mind is sex addiction as a cultural res- reference point and how much that that goes into the news, which is such a controversial area. Just yesterday, we find that Army Hammer went to rehab. Yeah, it's right up. It's 2021 for sure. Yeah, the, the way that... See, the thing that has surprised me the most about the, the sort of the quasi or pretty progressive 
perspective on Me Too and marriage equality and and many of these other issues in the mainstream press. I'm not talking about the right wing press. They're its own. They're its own thing. But the mainstream press, like, did I think when I was reading in feminist journals and queer publications in the 1970s about all of these issues, which I was, because we've been talking about these things for decades. These are not new things. But did I know that I would be reading thoughtful think pieces about that kind of stuff in the Washington Post? Did I know that we were going to start to to hear the issues of sex workers laid out in newspapers that have been around for a couple of centuries, a century plus, in ways that I feel good about, even though I've been steeped in that sort of political set of arguments for decades now. We have got, we have got a, um, a great dredging up that has happened of alternative perspectives on sexuality and the world, the political things too that don't have anything to do directly with sex or gender identity, but that are are related to what I'm describing, that lived prior to this in alt spaces only, pretty much only. You know, the 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 most up uh, out of the the depths that it got was in you know, three or four hundred level college classes that were sociology or, you know, political science or things like that. Now it's part of the world that we can understand if we take those voices seriously. And of course, not all Americans do, but there they are. The, the, the things that I was impacted by and influenced by reading essentially in secret in the 1970s are now in the Washington Post. That blows my mind. It's actually probably the only thing I'm surprised about about, 19, or about 2021. <laughs> Nothing else totally surprises me. That surprises me. But of course, without the internet, would that have happened? That's a good question. We know that the, 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 the way that porn has come out from the shadows has really so much to do with the internet and the accessibility of of search, of looking up what's what's making you curious and finding out, wait, I'm not the only one. That's what people riffled through the index of the Kinsey report to find out. But this is different. This is this is that on steroids or something. This is this with a rocket lit under it. And it means that that people turn to the internet thinking that all the information is there, and it probably is, unless it happened before the year 2000, and it's not there in that event. Only some of it is. So if you're if you're delving, you've you've got to go to old school history, archives, books, whatever, in order to to fill in those gaps. But I mean, in a way, I think that's why we started 50 years ago tonight, isn't it? Because you can't talk about the present. You can't talk about the present without talking about the past. I think many people think that you can, but you can't. It's influenced. It, it goes back and back. It's a chain. So now, now we have 
the ability to 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 really open these things up the, to to out abusers to to engage in pretty sophisticated discourses about what the right next step would be about all of this the the legal world is going to catch up with those practices it it wasn't the legal world that gave us solutions first it was activists who stepped up to say what are we going to do and and the internet also gives a platform and a communication space to people who want to push back on all of this so it's it's uh it's balls in the air all the time now it seems to me it's not easy to say that we've come through all this history and gotten to a space where we can have sex positive community now we have sex positive communities here and there and of course as you know i don't just mean whee sex i love sex that's not how i define sex positive that's nice and i love it when people love sex it's great but it's not a requirement I don't want to erase asexual folk and demisexual folk. You know, I don't want to do that, partly because sex positivity is a political, philosophical set of, of ways that we could still change the world for the better around diversity, information, culturally appropriate health care, psychotherapeutic care, all the things. Can I pause you on the sex positivity piece? Because I have a question about your reflections on the role of politics in sex, the role of the internet in a more public way, the, the role of social media that can breed comparison. Because as a therapist, one of the things I, I work with so deeply is shame. Sexual shame, erotic shame, and it's so often bred as as we know from am i normal but if you go even deeper than that it's a a desire to belong or a um a wanting to connect a fear of disconnection and when when sexuality is made public in the way that it's made public the tendency toward comparison or the tendency toward if my eroticism and my preferences doesn't match what I'm perceiving the cultural norm is, then some people might do what you did, which is move head on into it and just confront the cultural taboos and see what happens. (laughs) That's one way. Many people, I think, will tend to either placate or please or hide or it becomes subversive again, it becomes in the shadows. So I'm curious as we're as reflecting on this movement where it's so much more out in the open. And that's the beauty of the internet. That's the beauty of the labels. That's the beauty of expansiveness. And yet this role of shame and how that the dual nature of that. And I'm, I'm curious what your reflections are on that. You know, I think that one of the things that I have assumed for my whole working life, and when I say working life right now, what I mean is the since the time that I co-founded the gay youth group in Eugene in the mid-1970s, I mean, that, that was... That was of a piece of the work I do now in many ways. So my working life, I think, maybe started then. 
and certainly around LGBTIQA friends and family, queer and questioning, all of all of that work and and with sex work in the BDSM world and even people getting the nerve to walk into good vibrations and start talking about their, you know, physical sexual response and try to figure out if there's a way to improve it or fix what they perceive to be a problem. I think I have always assumed that making more space, more discourse, more community would put a lid on shame and its effects on us because shame is it's truly the problem when people have sexual issues that are painful and and impacting to them it may be their own sense of shame that you just described this fear of being you know cut out from the herd right the fear of being shunned fear of not being accepted by your family anymore your old friends all of that and you don't have to read all of the Q&A agony ant columnists like I do to know that people are full of that worry now for all kinds of reasons, certainly including sex and, and gender and identity and all of those pieces. But innocent people who haven't even gotten to the point of thinking, I'm not like everybody else. There must be something wrong with me are shamed by others. And there's no better example of that than this uptick in anti-trans activism against kids. You know, there's, it's, it's rough enough when people decide to go after adults for being different. That's not good. Going after children. This... This means that we have not figured out what the cure is to shame. Some individual people, sure. But I also think that this business of comparing ourselves to others, it sometimes it seems like it happens outside of a sexual context, right? But but selfie culture and and influencer culture and how many likes do I have and the, there's, there's a way in which social media really nobody planned this I don't think but happens to really connect with th- these human challenges that we've been carrying for such a long time so I really really want to encourage people to feel free to think outside whatever box they think they have to stay in. There there are places outside of it. They're good places. They're places with friends and appropriate partners. You've got to be able to step outside the limitations that you think the culture is putting on you because a part of the culture isn't necessarily doing that. And I really want to say that to conservatives who are living in their shame because I feel like there's, there's a, plenty of conservative people have actually really gained from the changes that we've been discussing this whole time. Um, there, are, there are a 
heavily politicized issues there. Of course there are. But I'm interested in the way that we act out when we don't feel safe and we don't feel like there's a place for us. And we're worried about being ejected. And, and you know, it's, it's in the 70s, the first thing I saw that sort of referenced all of this stuff was um, the, the, the pro-gay psychotherapy work done in loving someone gay and, and society and the healthy homosexual and being introduced to the notion of internalized homophobia. And now, of course, I know that any of these kinds of, of sex and gender and identity phobias can be internalized. And we, we have the cures for that, but they're not cures for everyone because not everyone can step away from this cultural matrix that holds them of belief, of, of family, of, of a particular kind of community. So, you know, I grew up in the sticks in Oregon and I grew up with them. And I, I know that there's this pain happening there too. And I would like to see that gone for everyone because I think things get a little safer for everyone when that happens. Yeah, it's like I'm it's the it's interesting to hear you reflect on the the dual nature of the poli- the politicization of sex, the internet, social media, these large cultural movements that we're inside of and how it's both it's both so positive, but there is there is this other side to it. There's the other side of comparison. There's the other side of shame. There's the other side of fear of judgment and how that plays out in, in erotic life, in sexual preference life, in how we actually allow ourselves or don't allow ourselves to explore sex, relationship forms, even, even fantasies, that there can be such a such an internal level of it's not okay because it doesn't match what it's supposed to and it doesn't match politics and it doesn't match the perceived nature of what is supposed to be okay with all the movements that we're coming from marriage equality gender equality that it becomes actually quite complex and that's what i that's what i hear when i'm hearing you speak but I'm curious, is that my lens or is that something you're actually saying? <laughs> no, I think I think I am saying that. And I, I, yeah. I, I just have a I have a I was talking to a young man who was living in the hip quadrant of Oakland and working at a hip job and, and surrounded by a wonderful community of people. And we were talking about sex positivity. And he said, can I ask you something? And whenever anybody, I've, I've been hearing that since I founded Gay Youth, I was 17 years old. Can I ask you something? <laughs> There's always something in there. Yeah. What is it? I'm the only person in my social circle that, I mean, I, do you have to be polyamorous to really be sex positive? And I was like, no, no, I mean... It helps to be sex positive if you're going to be polyamorous. There's that. But but no, it's not part of a definition of sex positive. You don't have to be any particular way except 
consenting in your activities to be sex positive. That's about the bottom line. From there on out, it you know it, it's it's many options, many many waves, one ocean, right? He's like because. I get really jealous and I don't think anybody else in my circle feels this way at all. And I was like, oh, boo. <laughs> you know, and, and what does that go to show? It's always something. You know, we can't, we can't run away from what we would consider a hidebound space that it doesn't serve us and hold us, leave room for us and who we are or who we want to be, and then create something just like it, only different, only opposite on the other side of town. It's not how it works. We've got to make more space for us to be different and together in community and in the polity. We've got to do that. That's There's a lot riding on it. And as a culture, we actually have 10 more minutes, so we have a little bit more time. As a culture, would you say it's moving in that direction? I would say it's moving in both directions at once. Remember the Wizard of Oz and the Scarecrow doing this? You know, that's my, that's my physical gesture to think about these things because... And I'm, I'm aware that I'm talking about a certain kind of polarization, and I'm making it a little bit binary in the way that I'm speaking about it. And I don't actually think it's that simple. It's as as we as we know when we step away from any binary, uh, it becomes complicated in new ways that growing up in binary mindset hasn't necessarily given us immediate skills to be able to pull apart and understand but we can do that that's a that's a good hobby for those of us to spend the rest of our lives you know doing a little of that work on the side every now and again because it makes a difference and it means that we don't have to think of everybody we're around as being the same or opposite us because that isn't true either there's the same and opposite opposite might not exist. You know, I insist on people not using the the term opposite sex because that implies two and there are more than two and this opposite opposite it's, it's it's a it's a geometry that in the these years of the 21st century that is an outdated geometry. So we can we can take a piece of paper and fold it up in little shapes and learn from that. That's what we need to do in order to to step away from this idea that there's only two points and everything else isn't even really what we're talking about. We're really only talking about those two points. That erases so much. And I'm talking about political ideas as well as gender and sex and identity and all of that. And that's that's really part of the philosophy of sex positivity. Is that Absolute, right? That absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, uh, uh, the sex positivity acknowledges that sex could be a positive force in anybody's life if certain things line up right for us. We need to tackle shame. We need to tackle opprobrium. We need to talk tackle any anti-state, you know, the Trump administration had plenty of that aimed at plenty of different people. We need we need to have that off of us. 
we need to train our doctors and our therapists and other helping professionals correctly so that they can give appropriate and compassionate and, and culturally sensitive care. You know, when we talk about cultures, we we so often don't think about sexuality or sexual diversity as culturally inflected, but I think that our discussion tonight has been all about that. I fully understand this stuff as people gathering together in cultures and subcultures and communities of of affiliation, of safety, of support, and, you know, the the right kind of partner finding. So those things are all built into sex positivity. And the sex ed that would give us the tools that we would need to understand this without having to go to graduate school and stuff, that would be great. I think if we we're pretty far from that. I, if I had to, if I had to tackle any two of the things that, and there are probably more things that I didn't even mention about sex positivity. If I had to tackle two things, it would be shame and education, and of course, those two things are linked. You know, education is linked to almost all of this. So is shame, or the potential of shame. It's why we have to teach each other. We can't really depend on the larger culture to teach us about much of anything, really, but particularly about sexuality. And I think that's such a huge part of what your, what your work is and what you stand for and who you are and what, what you're saying right now about this integration of sex positivity as a philosophy, but where do you, who do you speak to? How do you engage with the cultures, the subcultures, the relationships, the ideas, the ways of thinking that would support one to even know how to step outside of what the, what we're living in. Because the practice can't be telling somebody that you want to have sex with that, that they're not sex positive because they don't want to have sex with you or have sex in the way that you want to have. You know, that's not the practice. The practice is... The practice is stepping up to learn better communication, to learn that the that if the Me Too movement has taught us anything, it's that plenty of people out there, whether they mean to or not, breach boundaries and consent and 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 willingness and desire fences all the time. And that the sequelae of that are terrible. And I just want to say, people, if you all want to go out and have good, positive sex, learn to talk about it and learn to be consensual about it. And you'll see an uptick right away, you know, when you don't have to get somebody completely fucked up in order for them to be open enough to having sex with you or not noticing what's going on or whatever you think it's supposed to look like. It can look a lot better than that. And we're human beings in the 21st century. We ought to be able to get on this train and ride it to the next station. It's, I'm going to say something people might push back on, but it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. Once you start realizing you can communicate about sex, it starts to feel really good. And you... You, then you get the nuance. Then you can have an effect 
on what's going to happen to you. You know, like I, I said, I went, I learned about sex the best possible, most informative way in the gutter. Did I have good experiences in the gutter all the time? No, no, I didn't. I don't think I always had a good time. But I know that I always got information that has been serving me ever since. And maybe one day that won't need to be the way that we get our information. I'm not suggesting that everybody has to follow that path. That was the path of its moment and place and time. And I was eager to get busy and figure stuff out. So I went ahead and did it. (laughs) But but we have a beautiful opportunity now because the discourse has raised in all of us an awareness of detail. We don't always read the detail the same way, all of us, but we've got much more detail because people didn't talk about this stuff before. My mother told me that she had had non-consensual sex when she was a young woman when I was 28. And... She waited until my dad died so that she didn't have to mention it to him and say who the perpetrator was. Because don't rock the boat. I think we should rock the boat. Absolutely. And it's like we've come so far and it shouldn't be that hard. And as a therapist, I'm always I'm often asking the question, and why does it occur as hard as it does? And I think with that Carol, we um, we have a couple of minutes. I think we've covered a lot of the state of sex in 2021. But I'm just curious if you have any kind of final thoughts or reflections. Well, I just don't want people to think that we're on a trajectory that is going to solve all the challenges that we've talked about, nor do I want people to think that we're in a politically fraught time that's going to come down on us like a ton of bricks and, and erase gains that we've made. I want people to know that sexuality and pleasure are worth advocating for and maybe in some cases fighting for And that there are so many people to ally with around this. There are so many ways to boost awareness and insight and thinking into the experience of people that live sexual lives that you don't. That's so worth it. And it's not just that something's natural and it'll just come to you just like that. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. No, what's wrong is sex information and the way that we are limited in our vision and our desires by the cultural constraints that we come up in. And those are not either or and binary, and they are malleable. Even in the conservative side of things, we've seen changes. So I want people to be attuned to this stuff and be into what it means to be themselves, which all by itself is being a change agent for somebody else. You're making space for other people. And The more we do that, the more safety we can create and the more awareness 
if everybody doesn't feel politicized around it, that's fine. But please register to vote anyway and do it. Do the things that we need to do to get past these issues in every place that you can, because there are many ways to do all of this work. Any kind of any kind of social change work you need to do, there are many ways to do it. Sex and gender and identity and relational structure, those happen to be close to most of our hearts in some way or another. So I don't see why most people wouldn't find ways to participate in this cultural change. That's beautifully said. I always I'm love a- talking with you. <laughs> I love talking with you. I always think of you as the the ideal dinner guest that I would <laughs> pray that I could sit next to <laughs> at a dinner party. I want to thank everyone who is watching, and, and I really appreciate you thinking about all of this stuff along with us. Yeah, likewise. I mean, just listening is a form of participation. Listening, education, being willing to be in the conversation. It's such a huge part of it. That's... It's how we, you and I met. We met through through the CIS program. We met through having a conversation. We met through a shared commitment to education, which I feel is a huge way or a small way that one can contribute to, to exactly oh, what you're saying. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been using the word discourse over and over tonight. And, you know, that's, a, that's just big cultural discussion. That's talking to ourselves and each other about these things that are important to us. Exactly. And and that's clearly cat. my cat wants to participate. <laughs> just want to thank you so much for taking your time and just who you are in the world and your contributions to this conversation in particular are immense. They are truly immense. And I just, I honor you and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Zoe, thank you a million. Thank you so much. And thanks to CIIS for wanting to make this space for us to talk together and for you all to be with us. I really, really appreciate my affiliation with CIIS. So this is a this has been a lovely, lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those.
whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.